Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 15 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome Chris Williamson, the Chasing Earhart Project Director. Originally in the IT sector, since 2018, Williamson has mostly self-funded the Chasing Earhart Project initiative that has, through its blog and podcasts, made an effort to present every viable hypothesis on the shocking disappearance of famed aviator Amelia Earhart, her navigator, Fred Noonan, and their Lockheed Electra aircraft over the Central Pacific in July of 1937. Two years ago, at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, the Chasing Earhart team brought together the largest discussion panel of Earhart experts ever assembled in an effort to keep this issue in the public eye or until the ultimate truth about Earhart's disappearance is finally uncovered. Williamson joins us from Missouri. Chris, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thank you for having me, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, before we get to the theories of Earhart's disappearance, let's look back to her first major aviation triumph, the solo transatlantic flight. On May 21st, 1932, Earhart became the first woman and the only person since Charles Lindbergh to fly nonstop and alone across the Atlantic in a red Lockheed Vega. She left Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, Canada, and landed 15 hours later near Londonderry, Northern Ireland. And for this feat, she was awarded the U.S. Distinguished Flying Cross. Is that correct? Was it for that uh, one feat, or was it a contribution to aviation? Yeah, that was the big one, and I think it's important to state what precedes this accomplishment for her, right? So after Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 27, there's a a well-known socialite, an aviator named Amy Guest, that expresses an interest in being the first woman to fly or be flown across that same Atlantic Ocean. So after deciding that the trip was too dangerous for herself, she decides to sponsor the project. And she says that they should find another girl with the right image. Enter Amelia Earhart, right? So while she's at work one afternoon in April of 28, Earhart gets a phone call from Captain Hilton H. Rayleigh, who asks her, would you like to fly the Atlantic? But it turns out that the flight wasn't what Earhart initially hoped it would be, since most of what became known as the friendship flight was performed on on instruments and Earhart didn't have that type of training for that type of flying. She didn't pilot that aircraft. That was all done by Slim Gordon and Wilmer Stoltz, who of course were men. So she famously stated that she felt useless during the flight, like a sack of potatoes was the comment that everyone knows, right? So she decides to try it again alone this time. And that takes us to what you mentioned, May of 32. She's 34 years old at that time. She sets off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, as you mentioned, and she has a copy of the Telegraph Journal, which was given to her by a journalist named Stuart Truman. And that was done so she could confirm the date of the flight. After a flight that lasts just under 15 hours, during which she deals with strong winds, icy conditions, mechanical problems, she lands in a pasture north of Derry, Ireland. And that landing is seen by two locals there, two men, Cecil King and T. Sawyer. And that landing obviously scared the hell out of them, as you can probably imagine. But when a, <laughs> So when a farmhand asks, have you flown far? Earhart replies with, from America. So she flew into history that day. 
That's amazing. And But her original destination was France, and she realized that she wasn't going to make it and turned back to Ireland. Yeah, she was way off, and that might have been a precursor to the world flight, which we'll, of course, get to in, in more detail later. But yeah, she was way off. But did this successful solo transatlantic flight, and when she got back to uh, New York, uh, I, she was given a t- ticker tape parade, I assume. I don't know. But uh, yeah, uh, she became quite the darling of the media. Uh, did this uh, solo transatlantic flight give her the appetite and the confidence to attempt an around-the-world flight? I think it certainly helped. She was always very confident in what she could do. I think she was one of those people that just needed a platform. She needed that opportunity. And I think if she had been given that opportunity, she was going to perform. So I think completing this flight, even though she was way off in her destination, as you mentioned, I think it gave her the confidence. I gave. I think it gave her the platform when she made it and she went through everything that she did. I think it, it essentially turned her into an overnight superstar. She was one of the biggest people on the planet at that time. And she would, of course, graduate to becoming arguably the most popular person on the planet when she vanishes in, in 37. And the interesting thing is in Susan Butler's brilliant book, East to the Dawn, uh, she describes how Earhart first encountered aircraft and got kind of the appetite to learn to fly. Surprisingly, she was a, a horse lady, and I'm guessing that she must have been in her late teens, maybe even earlier. And uh, yeah. three Air Force officers happened to come upon her. Apparently the horse had bucked off a colonel, a colonel in the Air Force. Uh, air, air, back when aircraft were really, you know, Control was marginal in the aircraft. And so they said, well, she does that well with a horse that's known to be kind of rambunctious. Let's see what, you know, let's see what she thinks of these aircraft. And so they invited her out to watch uh, the three of them fly their aircraft. And she was so so taken with it. By 1921, uh, she had learned to fly herself. So, So, I mean, it's incredible that within 10 years of learning to fly, she had done this incredible feat only the the second person to solo on a transatlantic voyage. And the other thing is we need to give the audience some context because William Pickering, I wrote a a Forbes article about this. Before Lindbergh, you know, people, there were actually scientists, astronomers and and well-renowned scientists who were predicting that transatlantic flight would be impossible. In the same way that, you know, people used to believe that going to Mars was impossible. Yeah, uh, agreed. It, it was a, an area that hadn't been, it hadn't been done. You know, it was something that was, it was not been traveled, that it hadn't been explored, and it was a very dangerous aspect of flight. You know, got to keep in mind that this was sort of in the infancy of aviation. It hadn't been around all that long. And so flying over a body of water the size of the Atlantic would have been a major feat and and almost looked at as an impossibility until, of course, Lindbergh did it and then Earhart did it. And I think it's one of those aspects of history that you just have to look at sort of in awe because it was was such a, a brand new platform and it was such a brand new horizon that to take that risk and to fly over a body of water like that it's pretty remarkable, and to do it by yourself is even more remarkable, I think. 
particularly back when there were very only very rudimentary navigational aids. Anyway, so let's get to the the first uh, around the world uh, attempt, which was from east to west, and she ended up crash landing in uh, on approach in Honolulu, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about that first attempt before we get to the second attempt? Yeah, sure. Uh, she ground looped the plane, and a, a ground loop essentially is is really sort of an uncontrolled kind of rotation of an aircraft when it's landing or taking off or taxiing or something of that nature. So a wheel blows out, something of that nature. A, a way to sort of explain it to the layperson or to someone who's never heard of that term before. It's almost like when you take a, a grocery cart and you just turn the grocery cart and spin it and just kind of shoot it forward and it just kind of turns out from underneath itself. That's kind of what a ground loop is. Now she was in Hawaii. The flight had actually started. It had taken off from the States, from the mainland, and it had had a successful flight to Hawaii. So for, it, was, it was from Oakland, was it not? Correct. Okay. Yeah, they had taken off from Oakland and they had a, a pretty decent sized crew. They had Paul Mance on, on board who was her technical advisor and a, a genius of the time at the, at the time and she had her and she had Noonan who they had recently come into contact with and brought aboard the well the world flight so they had a a group of people that were going to be on board that first leg which was a pretty easy leg she had done it before it wasn't something that was a very big deal but they made it to Hawaii and they were going to take off as you mentioned initially and the ground loop occurs and when the ground loop occurs it sort of throws everything into a tailspin and she has to rethink the entire world flight, and they have to try to refund the world flight in, in the in the means of rebuilding the Electra. You got to keep in mind that the Electra had been purchased by Purdue University; it had been given to her by via Purdue. She actually took it, uh, took possession of it uh, on her 39th birthday. And uh, Earhart was very, obviously very excited about the world flight. And so the, the ground loop was a very big devastation for her. And so this and is the, it, uh, just to interrupt, this is the Lockheed Electra, uh, 10 E, which we're going to, yeah, correct. which we're going to get to a bit later, a little bit more description about this aircraft. But what you're saying is the first aircraft of this uh, model for, for her flight was, was kind of totaled because of this ground loop in Hawaii. And then she yes. had to find, and then she had to find a way to, to get another one, to get the funds to have another one built for her second attempt. Yes, correct. At a time when they had no money. That's really an important note is her and Putnam, her husband at the time, didn't really have much money. They sort of lobbied and, and mortgaged their future on this world flight and on this aircraft. And so when it when it crashed, it was pretty devastating to the world flight and to her personally. And, and this was George Putnam, who was the uh, publishing mogul. So on the ground loop, it as I said, it throws everything into a tailspin. They have to rethink everything and they have to switch the flight several months in advance. So originally they were going to be taking off. That potentially changes everything for the world flight because you got to think that if they hadn't ground looped the plane, if it hadn't crashed and they were able to take off as intended, then Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan and the whole crew at the time would have been going a totally opposite route than what they were faced with going ultimately. And so you would have had the headwinds and all of the other aspects that come into the world flight later when they're going from Lay to Howland essentially not be in play. That leg of the trip would have been the very first leg of the trip as opposed to being the very last leg of the trip. So that really does change everything and it sort of shatters the whole idea of the world flight and what they had planned for it. 
And the second attempt at a round-the-world journey for Earhart took off from Oakland on May 21st, 1937, on a west-to-east trajectory. And the first stop was Tucson, Arizona. She and navigator Fred Noonan were essentially going to take the longest 27,000-mile route that had them crisscrossing the equator at least four times. And right. It's a hell of a journey. <laughs> yeah, it was important for her to do it equatorially. They, you know, she really wanted to slam dunk this flight. She she wanted no doubt to be left by the people that had witnessed it, that were a part of it. They did it bigger and better than anyone else. So she really wanted to drive that point home. And the last leg of this week's long journey began on a dirt runway on July 1st, 1937 in Leigh, New Guinea. The journey was to take them directly across 2,256 miles of the open Pacific to a 450-acre spit of land known as Howland Island. And there, the U.S. Coast Guard was waiting to help her refuel and continue her journey to Honolulu. But as I note in Forbes, 20 hours after takeoff from New Guinea, the pioneering aviator, along with her navigator Fred Noonan, simply vanished and the largest sea-based aircraft search ever conducted at the time turned up nothing. And yeah. as I wrote, uh, as I uh, noted in my notes, I mean, that just gets to you, doesn't it? Aside from the theories of what might have happened to this duo, the fact that someone had been such a part of the public eye, such an inspiration to the American public through the Great Depression, had suddenly been snatched from them was hard to bear. I, I, I think it gets everyone. I think that's what creates such speculation and intrigue. This was arguably the most famous person on the planet at the time, vanishing off the face of the earth with no traceable evidence of that vanishing whatsoever. And as you say, the largest sea-based search ever by some of the smartest minds in the world at the time, including our president, FDR, strikes out. So they turn up nothing. So what you begin with, with this whole 80-plus years of theory, is just one big question mark, and people don't like those. So why do you think her disappearance still resonates with the general public in such a profound way? My listeners have been very excited about this one episode, and I have actually been uh, thankfully surprised that they've taken such an interest. I hope we don't disappoint. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but, uh, I did a story after the disappearance of the Malaysian 777, about five uh, missing air uh, commercial aircraft that went missing without a trace. And uh, yeah, I, I would bet no one could name even one of those missing flights. Uh, why does this one missing aviation pioneer still stir such interest, do you think? That's a good question. Um, I had the pleasure of having Susan Butler on, you mentioned her earlier, as one of our podcast guests uh, early on in the run. And she mentioned something that I thought was very compelling. When Earhart's consulting at Purdue, she'd often go into classes and then speak to women there. And one of the things that she would aggressively push is this idea that women could be scientists, mathematicians, engineers, aviators. You know, the list goes on and on. You fast forward to 2020, and we have so many powerful pioneering women that have made their mark and continue to push that legacy. So what you have is a woman doing these things in the 1920s, in the 1930s, and then inspiring other women to be better than her, go farther, higher, faster. And when Susan was riding East to the Dawn, 
She received letters from some of those women who were still alive at that time. And they spoke about how powerful it was to see someone of Earhart's stature in their class speaking directly to them. She changed people's majors, altered what they would do with their lives. And she became the foundation of what we all know today as something called STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And that's just one aspect of her influence. She is a pioneer in, in every sense of the word. And I think if you look at it, if you do research even badly on her career, that becomes pretty evident pretty fast. And so we didn't uh, cover the fact that she had been hired by Purdue University, and she was born in Atchison, Kansas, uh, uh, and then kind of moved around with her family a bit. I think she lived in Chicago at one point even. Uh, but she right. had no she had no direct association with uh, Purdue University, to my knowledge. Uh, so how did that association come about? Well, the president at the time had seen her speak. She was on a lecture circuit. She was speaking. This is, was, of course, after the transatlantic flight and the dozen or so other records that she had set between that time. And he saw something in her that he felt would be beneficial to the women of that day in, in, his, in his university. And so he called a meeting with her and asked her to come in and essentially take the role that she was going to take, which was just a, a, a professional consult. You know, she was going to be someone that came in there and just did con consultations and just talked to women, lectured classes, things of that nature. She wanted to she was very attracted to that idea because she was at a point in her life where she was almost at the end of her career as far as flying is concerned, at least professionally. And I think she was looking to take her, her influence, her power, her ability to pioneer modern aviation how, and how it affected women and what women could do and bring that into a classroom with young people and essentially change their lives. And I think that was a really attractive thing to her. So they hired her on and she became a, a consultant there at Purdue. And what's really interesting about that is that role had really just gotten started when they loaned her this money or gave her this money and financed her Electra. She'd only been in that role for approximately a year and a half when she vanished. So it's really sort of a sad thing because when you think about what she might have done with her life when she returned from the world flight, I really think Purdue would have been a big player in that. I think she would have really taken that role to the next level. There's There was a lot of rumor and innuendo and a lot of talk of them actually building a lab within Purdue that women could go in there and actually tinker with engines, learn how to actually, how the insides of an airplane worked. You know, and, and Earhart was going to be spearheading that project. So I think she would have been a, a very big influence, continue to be a very big influence on Purdue had she had survived the world flight. Okay, so let's uh, get um, to the major theories about her disappearance. Uh, and we're gonna, I'm just going to run through them, and then uh, there's one at the end I'm going to mention now, but we'll save it uh, to the end. It's one of the newer ones, and maybe you can uh, go over that one a bit more in depth toward the end of the podcast. But so, sure. the, so the major theories about her disappearance are the ditching Northwest, as she was forced, she and Noonan were forced to ditch northwest of Howland Island, which was her destination. That's number one. The veering south on a line of position to land on a reef at what was then known as Gardner Island, which today is known as Niku Mararo Island. And, right. and then the uh, 
the third one is that uh, she had been captured by the Japanese in the Marshall Islands after she after they were forced to ditch in that in in that area. And then there's the idea that Earhart uh, was on a secret mission for the U.S. or even crashed on purpose to allow the U.S. Navy to probe Japanese waters to look for her. And then there's a more recent theory that, uh, like I said, we're all going to say for later, but which posits that she had may, may have landed at Buka Island, uh, which I believe is technically part of New Guinea now. So, yes. So let's start with the first one, the ditching northwest of Howland. What's your view on that one? Well, crash and sink, or ditch and sink as some people call it, it's the official explanation for what happened to Earhart and Noonan. It's backed by the U.S. government. It has on its side the official story according to where they were headed. It makes the most sense. And if you're going to go with this first hypothesis, it's got the closest thing to an eyewitness and chief radio man of the Itasca, Leo Bellarts. And it's, it's got the only physical item that can be used in a court of law in the Itasca radio logs. So it also appears that what Amelia Earhart was saying just before they vanished would ring true to what is being argued here. And that's that they were flying at approximately 1,000 feet above the ocean surface. And that could either be interpreted as trying to fall well below the clouds in a last-ditch effort to spot Howland Island. Or it could have been an even more desperate situation and that Earhart knew they weren't going to make it. And it was up to her to put the Electra in the water as gentle as possible in hopes of giving her and Noonan the best chance to potentially stay afloat and hold out for rescue as long as they could. It also happens to put the Electra in her best condition should it have sunk 18,000 feet down to the ocean floor where it lies today. A lot of the experts working this investigation believe that the Electra would be in a relatively pristine shape. So should it be found? So that's essentially just a, a snapshot of of crash and sink, ditch and sink. And it's it's one of those most foundational theories out there. It's what the U.S. government started with. And it's, if you ask anybody in the U.S. government, if you look at the Earhart files, what's been released anyway, and you look at all that, it all supports the idea that she just fell short of Howland Island. But uh, no aircraft on the seafloor that remotely resembles her Electra, a Lockheed Electra has ever been found. In, in that area, that's, right? That's correct. There's okay. been multiple searches. It's also the theory that one of the theories that's been had the most searches underneath its umbrella. So they've spent millions of dollars. There's been multiple groups. Pretty much anyone who's anybody has gone out there and, and kind of thrown their hat in the ring and searched for it. And nobody has been able to come up with anything thus far. You're looking, you, you look at that whole theory and you look at that idea. We've talked to people that were involved in the discovery of the Titanic. And, you know, you obviously we, you know how large that vessel was. You're looking for a 38 and a half foot or 39 and a half foot airplane in the middle of the biggest haystack in the world. And it's very, very difficult to find. And it's one of those things that's been searched a lot. And so far they have not come up with anything. So they're going to continue searching. I'm sure everybody's got a different, spot in the ocean depending on where they feel that they posit it might have landed or it might have floated you know there's a lot that goes into that okay so then the next one is uh veering south uh to gardner island and i guess but before she took off uh, she had some a couple of alternative destinations in an emergency 
Yeah, there's. Uh, you would think that. Uh, I think Earhart <laughs> sort of didn't really have, really wasn't a plan B kind of girl. I think Earhart was a it's this way or no way kind of girl. I think she ran her entire career that way, and she was very, very lucky. She was also very skillful. That played into it, of course. But there was no plan B. It was Howland Island or nothing, according to what Earhart talked about publicly. And what are your thoughts about Earhart crashing the plane on, on the reef there? So what's lovingly been known as sort of, you know, around here anyway, is the castaway hypothesis, uh, as you said. It, it does put her around 400 miles away from Howland. And as you mentioned, you know, having failed to reach Howland Island that morning, they sort of happen upon Gardner Island, which is now known as Nicomoro. And they safely put the plane down on the coral atoll there. They send radio distress calls for approximately five days and they live out the rest of their days on that island and then they eventually succumb to the elements and lack of proper water there's a lot of rumor that fred noonan might have been injured in the crash or in the landing and so he actually died of a head injury potentially they don't have any hardcore evidence to support that but they they speculate that that might have been what happened and then Earhart was actually on the island for some time by herself the Hypothesis that's been championed by Tiger. Anybody that's listening to this has probably heard of them. They're very well known, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. And it's been arguably the most covered and reported on theory in the last several decades. And Tiger has presented a wealth of circumstantial evidence to support the hypothesis and place her on that island, among other things. They've found a patch panel that they feel is part of her Electra, and they found a woman's a woman's shoe, a man's shoe, some freckle cream, and uh, a couple of dozen other things. And that's been enough to convince some people. Uh, others are far more skeptical, of course, and they feel that with all the coverage and the numerous expeditions to the island over the years, 13, 14 expeditions, something like that, this one can sort of be ruled out based on just how thoroughly that, that island has been investigated. And Rick Gillespie, the, uh, the director of Tiger, told me for a Forbes article, if I remember correctly, that that uh, they would not have lasted a week uh, because there was no water. The exposure to the elements, uh, the sun, for one thing, was just you know, merc- uh, but, you know, unmerciful at that uh, latitude. Yeah, he, and, he, and he would know. He's been there multiple times. Uh, the one thing I can tell you with certainty is I've, I've talked to people like Dr. Tom King and... Uh, you know, Rick Gillespie and a lot of other people that have been on that island. And it it beats you down. It's one of the most incredibly difficult terrains and really pieces of land on the face of the planet. And I think if you were to have landed there and you didn't have the ability to survive, you didn't have the, the wherewithal and the know-how, if you had an injured partner that you had to care, care after, if you had to work on a tip, essentially sending radio signals and trying to stay afloat between high tide and low tide and worrying about a host of other things. And of course, you know, the, the coconut crabs that are on that island, that's if you just Google that, that's a nightmare just looking at those. If you take all that into consideration, the, the odds of Earhart lasting longer than a few days is, is pretty slim. And what are the coconut crabs? I don't, I don't know. Uh, give us so that the, Yeah, the coconut crabs are these monstrous things that roam that really live all over Nicomaroro Island. And there's there's not just a few. There's colonies of them there. And they are these massive crabs that you can see that 
they have videos of them on YouTube, and you might want to put one in, in the link to your in your show notes. It's uh, pretty remarkable to see what they can do. They they tear apart pretty much anything that's on that island, and they are the dominant species on that island. And so, if you're, you know, Earhart, and you're you know five foot seven, five foot eight, and you know one hundred and eleven pounds, one hundred and fifteen pounds wet, you know those things are are pretty monstrous and pretty amazing. And uh, they they inhabit that island. And I've heard a lot of horror stories from the folks from Tiger that have been on that island saying that they're, you know, all over their tents at night and things of that nature. It's 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 the stuff of nightmares, especially if you're not a fan of crabs. So in other words, if you were actually trying just to get some rest on a reef, those things would attack you? Yeah, they're they're very dominant creatures. And I think that's the thing that that's been argued a lot on that on that hypothesis is at what point did the did the aircraft succumb to the ocean you know did the the tides come in and actually suck that aircraft down and and that aircraft essentially would have been a hot box so they would have had to get out of it so the odds of those of you encountering those crabs on that island at some point while you're there are pretty pretty high uh and i think they would have been pretty frightened by those things especially if she had if noonan had died and she had tried to bury him or something like that. You know, we don't know there's so much, there's so much question when it comes to what might've happened in that potential week or so they were on that Island. If that's in fact what happened. One of the ideas is that they crash landed on this reef and the ride engine was still functioning enough for several, over several days that they could make these post loss, uh, radio attempts to signal anyone. And, uh, then uh, the idea would have been that they would have scrambled across across the reef back to the island or to the island to sleep at night. So in other words, they spend the spend the uh, you know most of the time on the island itself, what there is of it, and then scramble back across the reef to make these uh, attempts at at uh, working the the radio as long as that right engine could still. Uh, you know, turn over long enough to keep the battery charged. I mean, is that, is that the picture that you got? Yeah, essentially you've, you've described it very well. Uh, that's, that's the one thing that gets me about the post-loss radio signals, you know, in, in the days following the, the disappearance, there's government and professional civilian radio operation operators that are in the central Pacific region. And, uh, they're, uh, they're, you know, they're on the United States Pacific Coast, as well as, you know, there's radio amateurs and shortwave listeners in the, in the U.S. all over the country, Hawaii, Canada, Australia, you name it, pretty much all over the world. Um, Lockheed reps had had stated that the transmissions from, from Earhart's Electra were possible, as you mentioned, only if the plane was on land. So that really, I don't want to say it hurts crash and sink, but it does sort of go against what crash and sink is trying to represent with the idea that Earhart would have put the plane in the water and it would have subsequently sunk. Even if it was floating for a time, this would not have, the following would not have been possible. So if any reported signal was genuine, the electric didn't go down at sea that much we know. And so that was one of the, the, the really, I think the, the, the feather in the cap of, of what tiger has done. They've done some excellent work over the years. And I think sort of their, uh, they're, they're, you know, the coup de grace for them, I think, is the post-loss radio signals. I think establishing the idea that, hey, this matches up and that all these people all over the, the globe essentially were hearing these signals that could not have been possible if the Electra was down in water or if it sunk. So but a reef that's is a not, really fascinating a, aspect. A reef is not exactly land, nor is it exactly water. 
So, I mean, right. it was it was amazing if she did land there and was able to have yes. any sort of controlled ditching on that reef. I mean, that's an amazing feat right there to yes. not just completely wreck the plane. So Gary LePouk, who was a very well-known celestial expert, celestial navigation expert in aviation, was on your panel in 2018, and he had a challenge question for the Tiger hypothesis, the castaway hypothesis, uh, which was simply, hey, if you know, if you were on a reef and you were desperate to be heard, uh, and you were desperate to be rescued, you would actually say, hey, you know, this is. Uh, you know, you take that microphone, and the first transmission would be, "Hey guys, uh, I'm on a line of position. I think I'm approximately 400 nautical miles south of Howland. On this, uh, you know, maybe it's Gardner. I don't know." There was also a lot of hoaxes uh, that were reported at that time. Hoaxes, of course, are are not a, a new thing. They've been around for a very long time. So there were people that were also just saying, "Oh yeah, I I heard her, and she was saying this is Amelia Earhart." Uh, Betty Clink herself, who Tiger actually puts a lot of their their case on their investigation on who reported writing down frantically in her notebook uh, which tiger has in their possession now as a piece of their evidence that she actually heard her say i you know this is amelia Earhart. you know i'm i'm this is a mayday call and this is where we're at and who so, is Be- who is that, betty clink by the way so betty clink was a young girl she was uh, 15 years old at the time and she was listening to the radio and she says that she heard this voice come in and she she heard she basically intercepted uh, her radio intercepted Earhart's signal and she had this little notebook that she would doodle in and draw in and write stuff in and so she actually has the wherewithal to grab this notebook as she's hearing this radio signal come in and starts to frantically write you know, what she's actually, what's actually being heard or what's actually being said. And that's, that piece of evidence was, you know, obviously as she grew up and she tried to report it and she spoke with her father who uh, assisted her and tried to report it. You know, the Navy basically told them kick rocks. That's not, uh, you know, that's, we would have taken, we would have known that if that would have happened and they didn't really give her any time of day. So she basically just kept that notebook until she got much older so she was in she was in Florida. So she was living in St. Petersburg, Florida, and this is of course in you know the summer of thirty seven, and this is, you know, this is basically where she was at. So she was, she was a very important part of Tiger's general hypothesis, and that that notebook that she has, you can look it up on Tiger's website. They have actually got all the scans of that notebook, which is pretty remarkable. See her original writing from you know that time and that date exactly of when those signals would have gone out, and you know we there's text on it. Uh, you know, saying different, various different things, and she's just scribbling it down as fast as she can. It's pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable story. So it was a shortwave radio. Her father had erected a long wire antenna, I think it was 50 or 60 feet in length, across the backyard uh, from the house to a, a pole near the street, I think. And she could routinely pick up stations all over the world. I mean, that's one of those things that you can't prove or disprove, though, right? Yeah, it's it's hard. And then if you look at the if you look at the notes, though, the notes were pretty meticulous for a 15 year old girl. Uh, you know, if, if you all just kind of run through some of the notes, but some of the notes that she was writing, she's writing in shorthand and she was just writing as fast as she could as she was hearing it. But the first one was 158 miles. Then the second one was help me. And then the second one or the third one was W4OK Howland Port or WOJ Howland Port. She wasn't sure. Water's high. And then she was. She actually heard her say, "This is Amelia Putnam," which would have been very unusual, because Amelia did not want to be known as Amelia Putnam. Very publicly, she was, you know, against that. She wanted to be her own woman and known as Amelia Earhart. However, 
she could have said, this is Amelia Putnam if she was trying to get the idea or trying to get the her last name out there because Putnam was obviously listening potentially or Putnam was really well involved in the, in the flight itself. And there was SOSs, another Amelia name. So there was a lot of stuff. I mean, it just goes on for pages and she just kept writing and writing and writing. So when you look at all of that and the ability she, she had in the, in the position she was in, it is pretty compelling information. So then the other hypothesis is that she was captured by the Japanese somehow. And, and tell us, uh, you know, how that would have happened. Yeah, this is, this is the one that plays like a Hollywood movie, right? In fact, it, it already was once upon a time. Um, in 1966, CBS correspondent Fred Gurner, he publishes a book claiming that Earhart and Noonan were captured and then subsequently executed uh, when their Electra crashed on the island of Saipan, which is part of the northern Marinara Islands. Now, Saipan is more than 2,700 miles away from Howland Island. And later proponents of, of the work have generally suggested that the Marshall Islands is what it was instead, which is still distant from Howland, but about 800 miles. Uh, slightly more possible than 2,700. Anyway, the idea here is that there are over 200 people in and around the Marshall Islands in Saipan that can place either Earhart, Noonan, their Electra, or a combination of in that place at that time. So there are far too many stories to go over here, but the witness list contains everyone from local Japanese to U.S. military and people like Admiral Chester Nimitz, who has an entire fleet of ships named after him. So take that name as you will. There have been stories of there have been stories of Earhart, Noonan, or even the Electra interacting with people on those islands. Everything from their capture, Noonan's medical treatment as a result of the crash, uh, their containment, and in some cases their gross imprisonment, and then their eventual deaths or or release, depending on what you believe. And then, of course, we we had the now very well known Jaluit dock photo that was at the center of the Lost Evidence documentary on History Channel in 2017. That's got its own pros and cons, again, depending on who you'd believe. But this is one of the most fiercely argued and debated one of them uh, all with passionate you know, advocates on both sides of that fence. So it's, it's a very um, interesting hypothesis. It's probably the most robust. It's got the most under it. It's the largest umbrella of all of them. And as far as how they would have gotten there, people that that argue on behalf of Japanese capture mention a gentleman by the name of Clarence Kelly Johnson, who invented the SR-71 and many other aircraft and was essentially one of the smartest men probably ever when it comes to aviation. He actually did the report on Amelia Earhart's aircraft after the vanishing. And he absolutely suggested that Amelia Earhart's plane could have absolutely gone as far as the Marshall Islands that, uh, you know, that, that 800 miles or so that they needed to be uh, at to get to where they were at. And he, he argues that uh, in that report, which is a very robust report, it's, I can send it to you. It's a huge you know, report itself, argues that they had more than enough fuel in their aircraft to get there and that it was all sort of part of uh, this, uh, this idea of them trying to get there as opposed to get to Howland Island uh, when they realized that um, you know, that wasn't the plan after all. Is there any credibility to the uh, idea that she was doing secret reconnaissance uh, of the Japanese forces in the area for the War Department or that President Roosevelt himself uh, had uh, directed her to do so. And this was, uh, remember, only four years before the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, so this is, this is what I know. I know that she was very close with our president at the time. She was even closer with our first lady 
So Eleanor Roosevelt and her were very close. They admired each other a lot. Earhart was a big influence on Eleanor's ideas and her uh, suggestions for the U.S. And of course, FDR was leaned very heavily on on Eleanor in, in certain cases. So they were really close, her and Putnam with with the Roosevelts. I think it's a very loaded question, I think, because it's very, it's very in-depth as far as answering it. But I think it's very possible that she could have been doing some kind of reconnaissance mission in the, in the name of photography. She was an avid photographer herself. There is evidence to show, actually there's photographic evidence to show that she met with Kodak and she met with uh, high, end re- high representatives from Kodak uh, several weeks before the world flight. Uh, there's actually a record of her meeting um, a couple of high-end generals that were involved in the world flight. Their names escape me at the moment, but out at March Air Force Base in Riverside, California, which is about a, an hour east of Los Angeles, a couple of weeks before to discuss potential uh, plans for the world flight. So I think it's it's very, very possible that she was being utilized because of her celebrity and because of the fact that she was on this world flight and she was going to be in the area anyway uh, to take some photos and to get some vital information that the U.S. needed about potential materializing forces in in the Marshall Islands and Saipan. So it's it's very, very possible that that could have been the case. But on the other hand, I mean, anyone going on around the world, such a historic flight, uh, would want to meet with the head of the best you know, photographic uh, company in the world at that time, Kodak, to try to make sure that they had the best equipment to document that flight, would they not? Absolutely. Yeah, that's very much a possibility as well. It's, it, it's, it's arguable either way, I think. The people that support it are going to say that it's, you know, it means more than it actually is. And the people that don't are going to say, hey, she probably just, what you just argued essentially was that, you know, she probably did would, would want to meet with people that, uh, were involved in Kodak and, you know, t- to take a lot of imaging and everything of that world flight. I mean, keep in mind that that plane was a, it, you know, they called it the flying laboratory. So it was, it was a very um, high tech, high end plane. And it was, you know, there, there was instrumentation on that plane to measure like air quality and, and to take water samples all over the world and things of that nature. And just, you know, really uh, interesting, fascinating things that Earhart was sort of trying to be at the forefront of, and I think trying to set herself up for, you know, once the world flight concluded. So it's very possible that it could have been more of just a, uh, you know, hey, this is, we're going to make sure you have the best photography equipment so you can take images, or it could have been a little, something a little more sinister, a little more uh, dark of the moon for the sake of argument. But for me uh, personally, uh, you know, just stepping back, uh, the, the, the most far-fetched idea, is that uh, there was a film starring Fred McMurray and Rosalind Russell as Earhart uh, called yeah. Flight for Freedom, in which the two agreed to get lost in order to give the U.S. Navy an excuse to search Japanese waters. And to me, that, that sounds completely far-fetched. Yeah, that's I've seen the movie. Obviously, it's a, it's a good film, and it's interesting. And uh, it, there's a lot of rumor that actually George Putnam actually helped ghostwrite that script for that, which if there's truth to that, if that in, you know, ended up being proven true, that would be very ironic that that would have been the case. I think I can see both sides. I can, I can understand where people would say that absolutely makes sense because this is, as you mentioned earlier, four years before... Pearl Harbor and and the kickoff of World War II. And I think that if the Japanese were, 
you know, formulating a plan and they were materializing, you know, they they would have wanted a legitimate excuse to get somebody over there to try to take some reconnaissance and try to take some imagery there. And I think that makes a lot of sense uh, in that aspect. I think when you're talking about them maybe purposely getting lost, quote unquote, and giving them an excuse to sort of, you know, uh, materialize U.S. forces in that area and sort of take imagery. It doesn't sound as far-fetched to me based off all of the information that I've seen in the last 15 or so years when you start listening to some of the folks that have been investigating that and you start looking at sort of how deep Earhart was involved with the, you know, with the president and with certain aspects of the U.S. government and things of that nature. It's it's pretty interesting, but I can also see the, you know, the other side of it where it's, hey, it's probably just a, a really great ghost story, you know, that people are telling, you know, to kind of enhance her her persona or to enhance the legend of Amelia Earhart. So, you know, until we have any kind of concrete evidence of that, I think it is just speculation. I think until somebody produces something legitimate, it's it's going to be sort of just one of those things that's up for debate. Was she there for that reason or was she not? Okay, so let's switch gears a bit. Let's talk about the plane, the avionics, and the radio. Susan Butler notes in her book, East of the Dawn, that the Lockheed Electra model first flew in early 1934 and was the first plane to be able to cruise above 200 miles per hour. The, the 10E aircraft was equipped with two WASP engines rated with a horsepower of 550, uh, 550 each. Uh, uh, so what do we know about these Pratt & Whitney WASP engines? And Pratt & Whitney is, you know, obviously one of the, is known as one of the best uh, aircraft uh, engine manufacturers in the world. So do you think there was any possible problem with either of the engines? I, I really don't think so. I think so. So for those who haven't heard or for, for those who don't know or, or are not familiar, the WASP engine, it's, it's an aircraft engine of, of a reciprocating type. So it was pretty widely used uh, in American aircraft anyway from the 20s onward, I think. So a reciprocating engine, it, what that is, is sometimes it's called a piston engine. And what that means is it typically is it, it uses one or more reciprocating pistons to convert pressure into a rotating motion. That's what powers the engine. Uh, it, was their first, it was their first engine. So it, it was sort of the, it, it, was, it was the first of the WASP series. So it was really important that they got it right. And I think Pratt & Whitney, as you mentioned, their, their, their record is stellar. They're probably the arguably the best engine maker on the planet. You know, this particular one, it was it had all the bells and whistles, really like the rest of the plane. You know, it was single row, it was nine cylinders, air-cooled, um, had the radial design. Uh, there was only 30 or 35,000 engines that were produced. So it's not a hugely produced engine, uh, but they also weren't only used in fixed engine aircraft. You know, they were used to power helicopters and even uh, blimps, the K-class blimps, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So they were they were pretty dominant engines. And um, as you mentioned, they're actually one of the most revered, uh, revered engine types ever. So I think, I really don't think anything would have been wrong with those engines. I don't think they would have underperformed. I think, if anything, they would have overperformed. I mean, I think they were, uh, they were really dialed in. And I think the people that, we're building that plane and we're focusing on that plane. And in addition to the weight of the plane, which was a big deal for Earhart, I think the engine power and the, the thrust in the engine was probably the most important aspect of that plane. Um, you have, you really have three you have the weight, you have the engines, and then you have the radios, which we'll get into. But uh, I really don't think that the engines would have been any kind of uh, cause for any, any kind of underperformance. Okay. And so as Butler notes, the 10 E's, 
flight instruments included turn and bank indicators, rate of climb, airspeed, and artificial horizon. And then the navigation instruments included two magnetic compasses, directional gyros, and the radio direction finder. And then uh, radio direction finders had only become operational that previous spring, uh, developed by Bendix Aviation at the behest of Pan Am for its clipper service across the Pacific. And so the direction finder had a loop, uh, which it carried, which was uh, positioned on the outside of the plane. And I visited the uh, the Museum of Flight uh, here in the Seattle area, and uh, you can see, uh, you know, that loop uh, clearly above the cockpit uh, in one of the uh, in a model that they have on display of a 10E there, and the pilot could turn it to face the direction of the radio signal, which is pretty ingenious, uh, you know. Back then, when we didn't have uh, computers or you know digital processing. Yeah, no, it, it was really state-of-the-art. And Amelia Earhart loved that radio direction finder and that antenna, uh, the one that you mentioned that sits atop of uh, the Electra, uh, Linda Finch's Electra, actually, that's in the Seattle Museum of Flight. Great museum, by the way. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and then there yeah. was a, a Western Electric radio with the – and Western Electric is you know one of the oldest names in radio at that time uh, with a cup-like microphone that hung besides the window to the left of – Earhart's head, which was uh, to transmit at 531.05 and 62.10 kilocycles. Uh, Amelia had originally planned the broadcast on the 500 kilocycles, which was the standard frequency used by ships, but they eliminated the marine band radio, which sabotaged their ability to communicate with ships at sea, including the USS Itasca stationed at Howland Island. And so uh, why did they eliminate the Marine Band, because of weight, they they got rid of it. I believe in Miami. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was weight. They were uh, they were really concerned about weight because of takeoff and because of fuel. I think this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation and talking about the ground loop incident in Hawaii and having to go a different route, which brought headwinds into play and a lot of a lot of other aspects into play that they didn't initially anticipate having to face. And I think weight was controlling the weight of the aircraft was one of the ways that, that Earhart and her team thought they could offset some of those issues. But I would argue that uh, by her doing that, by their doing that, that, that basically could have doomed them because if they had been able to communicate with the Itasca, you know, you know, a back and forth two way communication, I feel, you know, you could argue that they would have easily found the Island, right? Yeah, well, they, that's a great that's a great point. They never established two way communication with the Atasca, so the Atasca is is pinging them and pinging them and pinging them, and they're just frantically trying to get a hold of them, and they never established that two way communication. So you could argue the idea that if they hadn't eliminated that, if they hadn't been so concerned with weight, and maybe tried to eliminate something else or take a different route uh, when it comes to you know the, the weight of the plane, that they might have we might be telling a whole different story right now. And then, uh, because several legs of her journey were over ocean, as we have pointed out, she needed a navigator. Uh, and uh, this is something, to my knowledge, she didn't. Did she not? She did not have a navigator on the solo flight across the Atlantic. Why did she change her tune on on this round the world journey? I think it was largely 
Putnam's influence. I think it was largely Mance's influence. Uh, the a world flight equatorially, especially, is a, a whole different animal than an Atlantic. As bad as the Atlantic flight and risky as the Atlantic flight was, as we talked about earlier, I think a world flight going over both oceans, going over the equator, they just needed somebody on board that plane, not only for navigation purposes, but she needed a partner, someone she could depend on and someone that um, could potentially take over and fly the plane if something physically happened to her or something of that nature. So I, I really think cooler heads sort of prevailed when it came to, you know, maybe her ego saying, hey, I can do this all by myself. Was Noonan a pilot? Yes. Noonan was a navigator primarily, but he was a pilot as well. He could, oh, okay. he could certainly he was certainly capable of flying that plane and multiple others. So as Butler notes in her book, Noonan was a good navigator. He trained Pan Am crew for the job. But on the Earhart flight, he was missing the radio bearings beamed to the Pan Am Clippers by Pan Am Operations. So was this a factor in their miscalculation? I don't think so. I think Noonan had multiple tools at his disposal. And I think if it had any impact at all, Noonan would have adjusted for it and been okay. I really don't think that would have that was sort of the, the nail in the coffin for them. I think, I think his ability was, was enough. I think his training was enough and I think he could, he could navigate out of anything. And I think he was, he was more than sufficient, uh, even without, even without that in play. But as Rick Gillespie of Tiger, uh, told me in Forbes, Noonan's career as a commercial navigator was also on the rocks. Uh, quote, he was desperate. He left Pan Am under a cloud. Gillespie told me, no one knew whether Noonan was fired for drinking or not, but his career was on the rocks, and by doing this world flight with Amelia, he had a chance to restore his reputation. I think, I think if you're going to have a flight of this magnitude and you need a navigator, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the world better suited at that time than Fred Noonan. He was the guy when it came to celestial navigation. I think he had a falling out with Pan Am, that's sort of shrouded in secrecy as to why that happened. And I agree that he saw this as a way of restoring his personal reputation as it was known to the public anyway at that time. If he had completed the world flight, he was interested in opening up his own navigation school. Who knows where that might have taken him. But when it comes to the rumors of him being drunk and whatnot, I believe for two reasons that that aspect didn't have an effect on the world flight. The first is that Noonan's reputation for being able to turn it on and be absolutely correct in his work and his calculations, it was unparalleled in the field. And secondly, I don't believe for a moment that Earhart would have put up with him having any outside influence during the flight. She she really despised alcoholics with her father and the history that she had. It was it was a really um, it was a really it was really important to her. And I believe that her and Noonan would have had an understanding. They would have had a heart to heart. And I think really she would have deplaned him if he had allowed anything to come between her and history. She just took it too seriously. So, uh, as I noted also in Forbes, the day before takeoff, Earhart did a radio check flight, actually, and the trouble had trouble being understood by the tower radio operator. And uh, that was a good opportunity for her to check out her radio direction-finding gear, and uh, she didn't even make an attempt to do that. I, I, agree that, I agree that Earhart had a bit of an ego, and she didn't have the biggest lean on technology. That might have been a fatal error on her part. I think her planning wasn't the best. What I do know is that they did a very thorough check of the Electra before takeoff, right before takeoff, uh, actually in the days before takeoff, they were constantly testing. Uh, Noonan was testing on it and they had some of the, you know, some of the best operators there at lay working on it. 
if anything had been a, a major flaw, such such as you know the radio not functioning, that would have certainly been a big deal, uh, especially for that leg of the flight. I think it would have been noticed, and the fact that she didn't test it might have just very well been the fact that she you know her ego might have gotten in the way. She might have said, "Hey, it's good, we're good, we don't need to test it, it works." And uh, I think that again, that could have been a fatal error on her on her part, uh, since they never established two way radio connection with the Itasca. I think. Uh, that's a combination of of just Earhart, you know, not testing accor- uh, appropriately like she should have, and uh, maybe being a little bit too confident in in uh, in her aircraft piloting ability and her navigator, and just the idea that they were almost there. They were probably exhausted. They probably just wanted to get the flight over with. This was their last leg. It was almost over, and I think she just wanted to get it done. And I think maybe in that haste, uh, you know, fatal errors might have been made. And Rick Gillespie of Tiger told me in Forbes that, uh, you know, with the one-way communication with the, uh, with the Itasca, she said, he said she could hear the repeated Morse code A that Itasca was sending, which was the prearranged letter to identify Howland Island. But her radio couldn't take a bearing on a frequency over 1,500 kilocycles, or as we say today, kilohertz. Um... Earhart's planning for that flight was abysmal. It's amazing that she got as far as she did. She had a very cavalier attitude toward the radio, uh, Gillespie told me, uh, which uh, kind of echoes what you said, but he was a, a bit more critical. Um, yeah. So, what, I would agree with that. So you know, her, her planning, her planning wasn't the best. I I would agree with with Rick there, and he he knows. I mean, he's if anyone knows, he knows. And I think uh, I, I think her planning wasn't wasn't ideal. And I, I think. You know, I think unfortunately for her, it it might have been the death of her. If you believe the crash and sink theory, and, and that's kind of what you're going to go with and hang your hat on, I think that you know the radio has a lot to do with that. And I think it's very possible that she could have just made one mistake too many, been a little bit too confident. For someone who who did push aviation's envelope, I I just you know personally, I know if I were doing a a flight like that in a 1937 aircraft. <laughs> Brother, I would uh, I'd work out every possible emergency communication strategy uh, with the crew of the of the uh, I test and retest. They'd be saying, "Gosh, that Dorminic, you know, I wish to hell he'd get you know get on over here and we'd get rid of him, right? You know, so it's uh, a <laughs> yeah, agreed. I, I I mean, you know, they, they, maybe they would say the same thing about you if you were flying that route. I don't know. It's uh, it's it's pretty incredulous because. You know, that's, I would argue that this, I'm I'm looking at a map right now, okay, uh, that I printed out from Butler's book. And uh, I would say that the the route from Natal to Dakar, uh, the the, uh, south to northeast route, that's a difficult route. Uh, But aside from that route, the lay to Howland, I, I would argue, is the most difficult. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think, uh, and I think Amelia would have agreed with you too, because she, there was a report she had, uh, we have it somewhere in our notes when we were doing one of our, one of our episodes and research for it, that Earhart said to some reporters that if anything's going to happen to us, and she didn't like to talk about that, but she did say, you know, if anything could go wrong, if anything could happen, it's going to happen on that leg from Leda Howland. And I think she, she eerily predicted her, potentially predicted her fate. You know, if whatever theory you subscribe to, 
whatever idea that you think it you know might have might be responsible for her vanishing and her and Noonan's vanishing, I think we could all agree that it happened at that point. It happened from that you know from that point to from point A to point B, from Lay to Howland, and I think um, you know it's 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 pretty eerie that she she would have mentioned something like that. So I I, I always uh, I kind of get chills when I think of that. So what should uh, researchers be doing? to solve this whole mystery that they aren't now. There has been a spectacular collapse and collaboration on this uh, in the last 80 years. What's happened is you're seeing that a lot of these theories are dividing themselves up, uh, up into camps. And you have your castaway camp, you have your crash and sink camp, your Japanese capture, your, your you know, uh, your Irene Bolum, your Buka, your, you know, there's, there's so many different umbrellas here that you're talking about and i think what's going on is people aren't really sharing the knowledge and sharing the information i think when you look at all of these theories if you're a lay person if you don't know what happened to amelia Earhart and fred noonan or if you look at this as a you know i'm just just kind of doing research you can sort of be convinced of any one of these theories and you can dismiss any one of these theories on your own will but i think you know, what happens with a lot of this stuff is people don't, they don't share the knowledge. They don't collaborate correctly. And I think it's very possible that it could be maybe a combination of some of these theories. You know, there's, there's a lot of famous cases that get solved by mixing two to three theories in some cases, you know, Hey, maybe you guys have 20% of it, right. And this group has 20% of it, right. You know, and it all adds up to hundred percent. It adds up to your answer. And I think what needs to be done is people need to continue collaboration and they need to open up collaboration like never before. Because at this point, it's been over eight decades and you and I are sitting here still talking about this. And there is no more information concretely on what happened to Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan now than there was on July the 3rd, 1937, a day after they disappeared. So where we're at right now has obviously not worked. And I think at this point, if you don't collaborate, if you don't reach across the aisle, and if you don't work together, then we're going to be 80 years from now looking at this just like we are now. We don't know what happened. It's a very large question mark looming over aviation. And uh, it's one of those things. This Electra is considered by many to be the holy grail if it's found. It's, uh, I, you know, it's up there with probably the most uh, sought after objects on the planet right now. And it's one of those things where it's just never going to, if you're not going to, you're not going to collaborate in that nature unprecedentedly, then you're not going to break that mold. And but, I think that isn't what's, uh, that's the, the lack of, isn't the lack of collaboration in part due to the fact that the individual proponents of these theories kind of see that their hypotheses is pri proprietary. In other words, mm -hmm. and, and it's also because of the way they're having to fund them because a lot of times they have to make deals with the with the film companies, documentary makers, to you know. Okay, uh, I have a great idea for a documentary. Give me an advance on the on the royalties from or the broadcast rights or whatever you want, and uh, that's how I'm going to fund my research. Uh, yeah. And it's inherent that inherently caused kind of a cloistered uh, you know way of doing things within this research realm that uh, you know basically doesn't doesn't promote collaboration right agreed yeah unfortunately money and fame gets in the way and i think there's a lot of people that 
you know, they obviously want to prove their theory. I think that's that's fantastic. They want to do the work to prove their theory. For, as sort of a, an outsider looking in or someone who's been working on, on my own project for so long with, with all of these people, most of these people, I think it's 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 sad that that has sort of gotten in the way of of solving you know this mystery. This is the way I look at this, and the way I kind of when we talk to to kids and when we talk to classrooms and things. You know, look, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, they belong to history now, so they belong to all of us. And I think it's we have the the moral uh, and the historical responsibility to to end this, to figure this out. Regardless of who's right, I don't really care. It's one of those situations where, hey, I don't, I don't have an iron in this fire. Um, I will push and promote and support every theory if it, if it pushes the work and continues the research. But at the same time, I, I understand what you're saying when it comes to, you know, hey, they're, they're, they're getting funded, and sometimes that requires them to be quiet about things. And I've experienced that firsthand, of course. But it's, it's one of those instances where I wish somebody would come together um, and just do one monumental documentary one big project that involves everybody so everybody gets funded everybody gets happy to to to, to finish their research and somebody's going to be right somebody solved this that's what i know and uh, it's one of those scenarios where we just have to figure out who it is and we have to figure out essentially what the story is it's a puzzle you have to piece together and i think between all the theories i think we have most of the pieces and um, i think hopefully in you know in the coming year or so it'll be it'll be resolved i'm hoping that's my optimism but i i don't know it just depends on if it's gonna if people are going to continue to get in their own way we're coming to the end of the podcast but before we uh before we go to the the final questions how about uh telling me about the buka island uh find that you mentioned uh that we kind of teased at the beginning of the podcast yeah, it's it's on the direct path from from Lay New Guinea. Uh, it's, it was on their flight. It was directly on their flight path, and it, it it was in an area that had never been searched by any any crew or any anybody at all. And what's really interesting about Buka, and you know, I should I should um, preface this by saying that you know we we don't know what this is at Buka. We 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 could be absolutely incorrect on what this is. Um, as far as who it is, I shouldn't say what this is. I should say who. I should say that. Um, Buka is very interesting because the gentleman who is heading up that search, his name is uh, Bill Snavely, and he's got a team. Uh, their team is uh, called Project Blue Angel, and it is a um, a team of of folks that have been looking into this aircraft, potential wreck site off the, co- off the coast of Buka. And the idea here, it has to do a lot with flight radius and this idea that Earhart and Noonan, as you mentioned earlier, were obviously very experienced pilots. They knew what they were doing. They, this, these aren't amateurs that were uh, just trying this out to see if they could make it. They knew exactly how flight radius worked. Uh, Earhart would have especially known how flight radius worked being in you know, uh, solo flights all her career. She would have known how that, that whole thing works. And the idea is that they obviously uh, didn't, you know, didn't feel that they could make it to Howland on the flight radius. What that is essentially is how far can you go on half a tank of gas? That's what flight radius is. So Earhart and Noonan didn't believe they could make it to Howland. So they essentially decided to turn around and go back to the nearest runway that was in Buka. You know, it was the nearest runway that they could make it back to that they could be safe. You know, if you're in that situation and you've got a runway that's in your way and in Buka, and you've got a further runway that's further out, you're not going to go attempt the further runway. You're going to attempt the closest one just to make sure that you're safe. And 
What Bill hypothesizes happened is that there was a, a, a big storm, and there actually was. They've looked into this and found that there was um, irregular weather over Buga in that area and there in the form of thunderstorms and lightning and some, some stuff. And this is and Bill, Bill um, Snavely, is that it? Uh, yes, Bill Snavely. Okay. Yes. And so they, they, they hypothesized that they were actually struck by, by lightning and that the plane went down off the, co- off the coast of Buka. And it actually rests right now in less than 150 feet of water. Now, what's interesting about that is that night, or that it, was in the, it would have been in the evening at Buka, it would have been or nighttime at Buka, there was a little boy that was actually on, on, on the island off the coast of Buka where the plane went down. And he saw this plane go down and he tried to actually tell the elders of the island, hey, I saw a plane. He didn't really know what it was. He thought it was like the second coming. And he didn't know what was going on. And he saw that plane crash and he tried to warn the elders and let them know what was going on. Nobody believed this little kid. I think he was nine or 10 or something at the time. Well, if you fast forward to around 1995, there was one of the things that, that people in Buka do is they, they free dive. They free dive for stuff and you know sea sponges and things of that nature. And there was a gentleman by the name of, uh, I think his name is Tiolo, if I'm not mistaken. He was free diving for sponges sea sponges and he found this wreckage he saw this wreckage and it happened to be in the same spot as this little boy at the time he was an old man uh stated so he was sort of vindicated at the end and bill started looking into this just sort of by accident about about 15 years ago or so about the same amount of time i've been working on chasing Earhart, and he sort of came across he was in buka he was in papua new guinea and he was in that area and they sort of told him about this story about this plane and uh you know he had he really didn't believe it at first. He thought, he thought, well, it could very well be an aircraft, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the plane. And so he actually had w- reached out to his contacts there and he said, hey, I'm going to give you a list of, you know, five things. Uh, you know, check the, the length of the plane, the, the, you know, the width of the plane. Is it a twin engine? All these things. Look for these things and let me know what you guys find. And if it's something that's uh, compelling, then we'll, we'll take the next step. Well, it turns out that according to the gentleman that he spoke with, which was a local there, uh, one, one of the local elders at the time, um, everything that he mentioned matched. And so that got his attention. And he started doing the math. And he started working out the time, the distance, the fuel. And he started kind of hypothesizing everything that could have happened. And this is how they could have gotten there. He sort of started working backwards. Okay, well, if, if this plane got there, how did it get there? Well, since that time... They have actually put a team together and they've gone out to Buka twice, officially. There's been multiple uh, searches out there, but there's only been two by Snavely and his team. And they've got sort of an exclusive relationship with the island and, you know, they trust them and, you know, they've, they really care about the islanders there and the locals there. And so they, they're the only ones that are allowed to dive there. Well, they've gone out and they've determined since then that this aircraft is not of a military origin. And it does, in fact, match the same height of the plane the same width of the plane as far as the uh, as far as the wings uh the same length of the plane and it happens to have uh, twin engines on it and it happens to be they've ruled out planes like japanese zeros and things of that nature um in military aircraft since then they've they've gone out a second time and since then they you know they've had rovs go down and they've they've done pretty thorough searches um there's a couple more searches scheduled uh once covid sort of you know, goes away, which is, I know it's going to be a while most likely, but um, they have actually confirmed recent details on the second trip 
that they are uh, working out right now to see if, uh, you know, to see if it's actually what they're confirming or what they're seeing is actually accurate. And if it is, then it's going to be very difficult for anybody to argue that that is not her plane. So what's really interesting about this whole idea is that everybody's been searching for a aircraft for so many years. And Snavely is the only one that's ever come up with an aircraft. And it feels like every time he works backwards and says, okay, well, it can't be hers. It's got to be this. Then he's able to dismiss that based off the evidence or based off of what they find on the next trip. So he's slowly working his way toward trying to identify this aircraft. And what I love about Snavely's attitude is he's absolutely not saying, hey, this is her. He's saying, this is very possible that it is her, but it, I'm, I'm happy, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to admit that I was wrong. And that's kind of a refreshing attitude to have, kind of goes back to what we're talking about when it comes to collaboration and, and, and having a change of attitude and sort of change of the guard. And um, that's, that's all very exciting to me as someone who's investigating this. And, and it gives me hope that uh, we might be closer than ever. And so we'll see what this next investigation, you know, uh, concludes. And uh, we'll see kind of, you know, what the ideas are there. And when, and when is uh, the next investigation going to conclude? So originally they were supposed to go out there on the third and potentially final trip with a much bigger crew and more equipment. Uh, what's We're in September. So they were supposed to go out uh, in May, I believe, of this last year. And of course that didn't happen because of what's gone on. So they're just basically waiting at this point to go out a third time and to bring a larger crew and more equipment, uh, bring a little more a little more sponsorship, a little more cash out that way. What's difficult about this plane is that it's it's not in pristine condition, not even not even close. It's in an area that's covered in coral growth, and it's you're basically looking at, at at the ghost of a shell of an airplane. But they're trying to extract certain aspects, like the engines, for instance, that are very heavy and covered in coral themselves. But if they can extract the engines or a piece of the engine, they might be able to extract a piece of copper from it and try to get a serial number off of the inside of the engine or something of that nature to positively identify the plane as being the lost Electra. So sure. how, how does her disappearance affect aviation even today? It didn't even occur to her that women, a woman couldn't do the things that men could do. It didn't occur to her that women couldn't be scientists or anything. It just, it just was. And that's kind of how she saw it. And she had an attitude that was you know, extremely legendary when it came to just pushing oneself and being the best that you could be. And I think, you know, one of the things we, to tell you a quick story and I'll, I'll make it quick, but one of the things that I, I found out or I learned uh, shortly after I arrived in Atchison for the, we went out there for the 2017 Amelia Earhart Festival and we were shooting interviews for the documentary. We went to her home, which is now a museum. It's on the banks in the, of the Missouri River, beautiful house. And we went upstairs to her bedroom and uh, there are letters that are written now from nine and 10 year old girls that write to Amelia Earhart today that ask her, you know, tell her about their dreams and their hopes and what they want to do and thanking her for doing what she wanted to do, asking if she's ever going to come back. A lot of people think that Amelia Earhart just flew off into the sunset. I had the naivete as a third grader. That's what I used to think when I did my first project on her. I, I remember thinking she just flew, there's nothing left for her to prove. So she just left. She just flew off in the sunset and she set her example. And now she's sort of a ghost. She's a mystery. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of intrigue there. And I think when you look at 
these young girls who come up to us when we're filming or would come up to us when we're filming dressed up as Amelia Earhart. They're eight to nine, 10 years old and they know who she is. If you walk up to anybody, I, I, I can challenge anybody listening to right now. Uh, if you're not in aviation, okay, that's the caveat. If you walk, in a, walk up to everybody and you say women in aviation, everybody's gonna say Amelia Earhart right off the bat because they're gonna know that name. There's a reason they know that name, not just because of the disappearance, but because she was the face of aviation for so long. That's amazing. And in many ways, it's, oh, it's, it's, no, it's amazing and inspiring. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and in many ways, she still is the face of aviation. She still is. I mean, I've heard this. I can tell you this confidently because I've heard this from probably over 100 guests that have been on Chasing Earhart that are in, in aviation and STEM. Uh, they still look up to her. They still look into her life. They still look, they still look at the things that she faced and how she overcame them. And, you know, if we arrive on Mars if that's a female astronaut in that aircraft arriving on Mars, you can bet you that Amelia Earhart had influence on that. People like Amelia Earhart. And I'm not just going to say just Amelia Earhart. She was just one of many. I don't, I don't want to say that she was the only one, but Amelia had a way. She had an aura. She had something that, you know, was really special about her. I mean, obviously you have so many others that were, uh, you know, that were impactful on, on, on aviation, but Amelia Earhart sort of stands above them all. And I think, she sort of was smart enough to see that she could, she could see that, Hey, I've got some power here and rather than be selfish and use it for myself, I'm going to try to use it as a platform for women and, and aviation and aerospace. And, and I think because of that, um, that decision and that, that impact she had then still resonates now and it'll probably continue to resonate for a hundred years. And that's, that's even before, you know, you get to the juiciest disappearance of all time, essentially. So, so what's you know, uh, there? You have it. So, what's next for the uh, Chasing Amelia project? You mentioned the documentary. Is that what's next? Yeah. So we we wrapped up our podcast. We did roughly a hundred episodes on Earhart, and we did season one of Vanished. Is uh, all about Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, and and all about that. And we've been working on this documentary for quite some time. It is it is now in the hands of a developer and they are shopping it to distributors. And it's sort of out of my hands. I, I structured it. I, I created it. I pitched it. And now we've got it in the hands of people that are much more capable than I when it comes to getting this, you know, on TV screens or um, on Netflix or Hulu or something of that nature. And uh, we'll see what happens. You know, it's very possible. It's, TV is a... <laughs> a very difficult business and uh it just makes my head hurt just being in these meetings sometimes <laughs> but uh you know it's one of those situations where we're just kind of you know it's i've washed my hands with it it's it's in somebody else's hands now much more capable than mine and i'm going to continue to um talk about her legacy you know always happy to discuss the disappearance and and um and kind of bring people together as much as i can and that's where we that's where we left it you know i, I left it very confidently um walked away from it. And this is actually the first time I've spoken about Earhart publicly in uh, quite some time now. Well, I appreciate uh, you're, you're talking about it here. Um, what puzzles you most about uh, Amelia's disappearance? Just the big question mark. That's, that's the thing. She had such an iconic life. She was 39 years old when she disappeared. Uh, you can imagine what she would have done if she had 20 more years, 30 more years of her life. You know, she, she would have done some amazing stuff. It, you know, it's one of those situations where you look at people, people get sucked in and swallowed whole by this, by this, this whole idea of Earhart disappearing. And I can't tell you how many people I know that said, hey, I'm just going to get into this for a couple of years and see if I can, you know, take, take a crack at it. And 30 years later, 40 years later, they're still, they're still into it. You can't let it go. We had this, we had this ongoing joke at, you know, at the show that, you know, Amelia's got you now. And it's one of those situations where it's like <laughs> once, once this whole, 
mystery gets a hold of you, it doesn't let go. And you just want to know what happened. No uh, matter what theory you pick, this doesn't end well for her. She either dies in the middle of the ocean, crashes and dies, drowns. She either gets executed and kicked into a grave in Saipan. You know, she dies a terrible death alone on an island. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a great choose-your-own-ending ending. It's a very terrible ending for someone who was as iconic and, and gave so much of herself to aviation. So I think... You know, that's probably the one thing that just it puzzles me the most is, is, is you know, what happened to her? You know, what wh- and why can't we find this out eight, eight decades plus after? Why is this so elusive? Why is Earhart so elusive to everybody? And I think that's one of those questions that will continue to be asked until we pull her plane out of the ocean or off an island or something of that nature. So, Chris, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media? Uh, yeah, you can you can find uh, find the show if you just search if you just Google search uh, Chasing Earhart right now you'll we'll come up everywhere in Google and Google Image and all that stuff. ChasingEarhart.com is is our website. It's still up. It's archived now, but it's still there. Everything we've ever done, every podcast, we're on every podcast platform. Um, Vanished is getting ready to launch season two. Uh, it will not be about Earhart, uh, but it'll be a, another fun case that we get to look at. My my partner and myself, uh, Jennifer Taylor. We will, we will dive into another case and have a little more fun with that. But um, you can find us at VanishShow.com, um, and that will, give us, um, that will give you access to the entire season one of Vanish, which is all about Earhart. And uh, ChasingEarhart.com, ChasingEarhart on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're pretty much everywhere. It's not too hard to find us. I'd like to dedicate this episode to my dear late mother, uh, who was always inspired by Amelia Earhart and was equally mystified by her disappearance all those years ago. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Chris Williamson, let's hope that we will both live to see this mystery solved. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. My pleasure. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>